Lord, there are times when um, we look at Jesus and uh, we are impacted because we know that uh, there was and there is something incredibly special about him. And today as we look at Jesus, we would pray that uh, you would make that impact in us. Lord, we're not here by accident. Every single one of us come to this place uh, to worship, to encounter you, to think of Jesus again. So Lord, in this time, we pray that you would speak that by your spirit, uh, something would be said deeply into the heart of every person here. Um, that they would know how Jesus loves them. And that they would make room for him. Amen. Well, I'm kind of glad to hear the response of this congregation about wanting to hear about Jesus. You know, I get it. It's been a long journey through the Old Testament. Tons of great learning, tons of good stuff, but as I'll say in a little while, we've been confronted more with the problem than with the solution. Um, and we come to this chapter today, chapter 22, the birth of a king, and we're going to hear about a baby story. I'm going to think about it. It's almost like it should be December the 24th instead of March 23rd. Um, but it's a great story. I know a lot of you have baby stories, right? If you're parents, you've got baby stories. If you're grandparents, you have even more baby stories. And if you don't have kids, you've heard baby stories. Because parents and grandparents can't stop talking about them. I, ha I have a bit of a baby story, and, and it's when we had our first child. Um, you know, I went to the classes, because you, you got to go to the classes to try to figure out what on earth is about to happen to you. Because uh, really, as some sign that I saw recently said, these babies don't come with a manual, right? And we, Heather and I, are about to go into this birth experience, she more than I, but I'd be there. And we had to learn how this got done. So we went and we were prepared and, you know, learned everything that Heather needed to know. And I'm the dad. I, I have responsibilities. And some of those instructions came my way, particularly to me. One of them was, dads, when it's time to go to the hospital... You know, when your wife goes into labor and, 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 and you know you got to get her there, don't drive like a maniac. Don't get her in an accident. Don't get her all fired up because you're acting like, you know, you're Mario Andretti or something like that, or whoever you might speak to now. So, you know, time came and we get in the car, we've got the bag packed, and I'm just literally driving down this road, this Interkip road from Interkip to Woodstock, and I'm going 40 clicks an hour because <laughs> I know my job. Nice and easy, safe, make things relaxed. And just as we're pulling out of the, the village, Heather has another contraction. You know what she says? Speed up! I want to get there! <laughs> so, of course, my foot goes down in the pedal pretty hard, and we got there in a hurry. Number one, mistake. Number two, I learned in these classes, dads, it's your job to time contractions. And you know why, those of you who've been through this, I mean, the closer the contractions get, the sooner the baby's coming. It's good information you need to know. So I started to time contractions as soon as we got to the hospital. You know, you know how many contractions I counted? Every single one for hours. <laughs> I don't know why. I just thought, I got to count contractions. I'm going to do it. But of course, you know, in, in, in the end, everything went well, and, and our son was born, and, you know, in spite of me, quite frankly. And it was good. 
I want us to think about the birth of Jesus today. I want, I want us to think about the baby story, and I want us to understand, and I want us to hear that in the birth of this child, something happened that, that was like no other birth. It was absolutely unique. Nothing had happened prior to it like this. Nothing would ever happen like it again. It was a powerful, earth-shaking, life-changing moment for humanity. I'm going to read from page 310 in the story, if you've got it with you, and I hope you do. It's good to read along and to dig in. It's at Luke chapter 1, verse 26. Listen to this story as it's told to us from Luke chapter 1. God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth to a, tow a town in Galilee to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid. Mary, you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, so the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. Um, you know the focus in this text? It is almost entirely, while we think lots about Mary and the angel and the interaction, it's almost entirely on the fact that God fathered Jesus. Three times in that text, and you always look at repetition in a text, the word virgin is used. Three times we are told this young woman was unmarried and she had not had sexual relationships with anyone. The reality is that something happened by the action of God's Holy Spirit so that she conceived. It was utterly unique. It was like nothing that has ever happened before. Nothing like, like it has, has happened since. Now, there's a whole lower story dynamic going on here. A young couple who were betrothed. We don't use that word anymore. We don't even have a word for it because we don't do marriage, if you would, like they did in that Jewish context. Pretty much they were married. They were fully committed to each other. They'd had the ceremony. But the marriage had not yet been consummated. That's how they did it in that day. The bride would go home with her parents and the groom would go home with his parents. He would then build an addition onto the house, if you, if you would, of his, of, of his parents' home. And when his father, the groom's father, decided that it was time to go get his bride, he would say so. And off the groom would go and he would get his bride and with great celebration and with great joy, she would return to him, with him, to her new home. And... Then, subsequent to, to that, then, of course, the consummation would, would happen. You see, Joseph was in this relationship with Mary that was solid, it was committed, the vows had been taken. That's why it says in, in the first chapter of Matthew that he considered divorcing her because a divorce would have been required at this point. Way beyond engagement as we understand it. He thought that somebody else had fathered the child in the womb of Mary. You know what? He was right. God had fathered that child. 
You see, that leads us to an understanding of the upper story, the great story that God has been telling ever since the Garden of Eden was formed and, 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 and the whole journey began. See, something that happened in this moment, in this conception, that was absolutely huge. We see it not only in the fatherhood of God in Jesus' life, we also see it in, in, in the titles that Jesus is given. His name means God saves or the Lord saves, very literally. He's called the Son of the Most High. You know, it, he, he said to sit on David's throne and he would reign over Judah forever. His kingdom would never end. You see, this reign was to be an eternal reign. And by the very definition of that, Reality, the only one who could do such a thing was God himself. You see, the point here is in the Old Testament, <laughs> and I want to take a minute with this. We've seen the problem, haven't we? Anybody seen the problem? Over and over and over again, from the fall into sin of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden to this very point, people could not keep the law. And, you know, I'm kind of glad we've stayed in the Old Testament for so long because I think, I hope that people are impressed so much with this reality that, that, that people could not do what God invited them to do in the law. It wasn't in them to do it. And they and we needed saved because there was something in us, this sinful nature that we inherited from Adam and Eve all the way down through the generations that capped human beings from doing what God required of them to be saved. What happens in this moment in the, in the conception of Jesus is that God acted so that Jesus would come so that he would save human beings who could not save themselves. Remarkable moment, remarkable reality as Jesus is introduced. Page 312 the story carries on. Um, Mary is very much pregnant and, 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 and the trip to Bethlehem is described. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. <coughs> Excuse me, she wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. No guest room available for them. I want you to think about this. This eternal savior, this sovereign king was born not in an inn where they hoped to reside. He was born in a stable, a barn. God entered into human history ignominiously. It was dirty, it was smelly, it was probably loud, it was likely cold. You get that? And there wasn't room for him in the inn. What honestly do you think of that? We've seen a video where someone shuffled them off to this barn, to this cave, whatever specifically it was. I want to tell you, that's the stuff of the lower story. Because sometimes Jesus comes to us too, this Jesus who is God's salvation, this Jesus who is eternal king. He comes to people and we have no room for him. 
this unnamed innkeeper, as is displayed here, had absolutely no idea what he was doing that night. He was completely unaware of who was in the womb of this young woman. He had no idea who he was sending to a stable. See, lots of people do that. Jesus comes to them and they say, no room here. No room. My life is just too full for you, Jesus. You know, I'm too busy with all the things that I have to do, my kids and my career and my schooling, my education, the fun that I have in life. I just don't have room for you in my life. I have too many of my own plans, thank you very much. How can I do all, everything that I'm planning to do but also somehow incorporate Jesus into life? Some people might say, hey, it's way too late for me. Look how old I am. I've lived my whole life without him. He could hardly want me now. Some might say, I've gone too far. The things I've done, the sins I've committed, Jesus wouldn't even want me now. I want to tell you, with all of these things, with every single one of them, they're all wrong. Your life too crowded for Jesus, I want to tell you, Jesus comes into a crowded life, and he becomes part of it all. Part of you looking after your kids, part of your career development, part of your education, part of the fun that you're going to have. If anything, Jesus actually will simplify your life because he gives you priorities upon which to base what you do. You have too many plans in your life. Well, I want to tell you, Jesus will come in and he'll probably bless some of those plans and he'll probably want to get you to get rid of some of the plans too. And he's probably going to add a lot of other plans into your life of his choosing, but I'll tell you, whatever it is in the end of the day, he does it that you might enter into an adventure with him and a life of blessing far beyond what you know now. You think you're too old? Remember, it was 40 years of age when God called to Moses. He entered into a relationship with God and, and the serving of God when we, he was 40. Abraham was 80 years old. You're never too old to come to Jesus. Never too old for him to come to you. And some think maybe they've gone too far in rebellion and in sin. I want you to think about the criminal who was hanging by the, uh, on a cross beside Jesus the day that Jesus died. Only the worst of the worst were crucified. What he had done, I think he even admitted himself, was worthy of this death. But he expressed faith in Jesus, and Jesus said to him, today you will be with me in paradise. Even that man was forgiven. Even that man was given the grace of God. No one has entered too far into sin to not know the grace, the forgiveness, and the love of Christ. My friends, I want to tell you, don't think that your life is too full for Jesus, ever. Don't say that there is no room in your life for him. Well, the story goes on to the angels coming to the shepherds, and I want to read that one to you, 312 in, in the book again. Um, chapter 2, verse 8. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. And angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. 
But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. I want to tell you, those words that I just read to you were an invitation. It was the angel saying, he has come. You can find him. You know, go and pursue him. Go see for yourself. And this is exactly what those shepherds did. Have you ever gone to see for yourself? As opposed to just listen to what other people might say about this one who came? I want to talk to you just for a little while today about who it was when those shepherds went to, the, to, to that shed, to that barn, to that cave, and they looked in the manger. I want to talk to you about who, again, about who they found there. Page 309. This chapter begins with the beginning of John chapter 1. And I want to read these words to you, verses 1 to 5. And I want you to listen, and I want you to hear, and I want you to understand who was born that night. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He's referencing Jesus, the Word. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now, when John writes those words, he's a, he's a brilliant man, and he has two audiences in mind. First of all is the Hebrew audience, the people who are the Jewish folks of his day. And he's writing to them. And, and he begins his gospel with the words, in the beginning. And any Jewish person in that moment would have stood back and immediately have thought of the first words of Genesis 1, verse 1, when God said, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And in that understanding, they would recognize right away who Jesus was. He was the existing, the, the eternal God who existed pre-creation. Jesus was there at creation. His life did not begin in the womb of Mary. It did not begin with the birth of in Bethlehem. Jesus had no beginning. It was Jesus, the text says, who created the world. He, Jesus, was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made, John writes. He's referencing that early story and he's clarifying who this one was. Who was born in Bethlehem, the creator of the world. The one who was present in that time when is described in Genesis 1-1 when it says in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. It was Christ. It was Jesus who spoke and said, let there be light and there was light. It was Jesus who said, put the, the, you know, the lights in the sky, the stars and the sun and the moon. He spoke and they came into being. It was Jesus who said, separate the, the land from the sea. And it happened by the power of his word. My friends, that night the innkeeper who, who didn't have room in the inn for this couple sent away the creator of the universe. Second group that John was speaking to in that day uh, were those who thought and had been influenced by Greek thinking. 
the word that he uses when he says in the beginning was the word is the word logos. Um, all Greeks would have known this word. It would have been clear in their mind what John was defining, who he was describing, what he was thinking about. Because 200 years prior to this, a Greek philosopher named Heraclitus taught that behind all of life was a logos. From the word logos, we get the word logic. What he was saying was there was a logical reality behind all that existed, uh, a, a rationality, uh, a reason, an omnipresent wisdom by which all things, and I'm quoting now, all things are steered. Plato, that incredible philosopher, came after Heraclitus, and he said, someday there might be one come from God, a logos, who would, and I quote, reveal all mysteries and make everything plain. And what John does in identifying Jesus as the word. To the Hebrews, he's describing eternal creator. To the Greeks, he's describing that reality come from God who would explain everything. And my friends, it was the innkeeper that night who sent the Logos away to a barn. Let me read 309. John chapter 1, 9 to 14, 17 and 18. Listen again. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Are you understanding the significance of what John is trying to communicate to these people to whom he wrote and now to us? He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. Children born not of natural descent, here it is again, the fatherhood of, of God Almighty, not of natural descent nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. Um, that is a remarkable, remarkable thing to know about the baby who lay in a manger. You see the one who was born in Bethlehem? And do you believe in what John wrote about him to be true? You see, it was an astonishing moment in human history when Jesus was born. The central moment in human history because there he was born as the God-man, fully God, fully human. One who was divine and could live a perfect life in the way that we couldn't. You see, we have the sinful nature when we're born. He ha inherited no sinful nature from a human father because his father was God. So as divine, he was able to live that perfect life. But as a result, he was the one who, as a human being, could suffer on the cross and die in the place of human beings. He could take to himself our sin and our guilt and our shame. He could stand in our place 
because even though he was God, he was also human. This one came into the world. And as this text says, though he, the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. See, the reality is that that innkeeper had no idea. He did not recognize the fact that in the womb of this young woman was the eternal, all-powerful, all-knowing God. I want to read to you a famous verse from the book of Revelation. It's a book that is also written by the Apostle John, the same John who wrote the Gospel of John and who has written these things of Jesus. And I have no idea whether he had that innkeeper in his mind when he wrote this. It's actually not in our storybook that I'm aware of right now. Um, but he wrote this. Revelation 3.20. It's been like that all along. John wrote, quoting Jesus, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and open the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. I want to tell you that's a shocking thing. And if you're not shocked by that reality, you're missing it. That the eternal king, the savior of the world, God himself wants to share his life with you and wants you to share your life with him. He wants to sit down at a table and eat with you. Of course, in the Jewish culture, that symbolized something powerful. It meant a sharing of life, an acceptance of one another, a connection that was deep and that was real. You wouldn't eat with someone unless that was a reality. That's why when Jesus ate with Zacchaeus, people were aghast that he would do such a thing. That's why Jesus formed the Lord's Supper that we share in regularly, that we might encounter intimate connection with him. But here's my point. The God of the universe wishes to have that relationship with you and with me. And here's the point that I want to make with you today. As you hear of what the innkeeper did, as you hear about Jesus' offer to come in and eat with you and share life with you and know you, and love you and care for you and be known and loved and cared for by you toward him. Here's the point. Don't miss Jesus the way the innkeeper did. I want to say today, Jesus is here. He has come into this world as a child. He grew up. He died on a cross for the forgiveness of our sin that we might have a relationship with God. And he is here. He has come to save. And he wants relationship with you. 
He wants to come <laughs> into your life. He wants to forgive your sin. He wants to cleanse you of all the junk that maybe you carry so that you never have to face it again. He wants to satisfy the deepest longing of your heart that you might walk with him like Adam and Eve walked in the garden with God. He wants to make you new. He wants to love you for eternity. And in the end of the day, I guess what I'm saying today as we reflect on Revelation chapter 3 is what are you going to do with that door of your life? The innkeeper essentially left it closed. It says in John chapter 1, I've read it for you, that his own did not receive him. They didn't recognize who he was. What will you do with him? You know, if you want to receive him, to those, let me read this verse for you again, to yet to all um, who receive him, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. John 1, 12. How do you receive Jesus? Have you received Jesus? Will you receive Jesus? Or will you not? Well, if you want to receive Jesus, it's the most simple thing in the world. Because all we need to do in his presence is close our eyes and enter into prayer and say, Lord Jesus, yes, I receive you into my life. I open the door and I invite you to come in. I pray, Lord Jesus, you'll forgive me for my sin and he will in that moment forgive you of all the sin you've ever committed and all you ever will dealt with. And in that moment, he will become part of your life that you might know him and love him and serve him and obey him with all of your heart. He will dwell here by his spirit. He will know you. He will have come in. You will have received him and you will know him in a powerful and life-changing way. He will change your heart. And I just want to ask very simply today, is there anyone here who wants to open the door of their life to Christ? Say, yeah, Lord, now. This is the day. I'm not going to send you away anymore. I've done that too much. I've focused on too many other things. I've believed things that aren't true. But today, Lord Jesus, I want to say yes to you. I'm going to give you a moment to do that in silent prayer. But I want you to think about it. And if you've never done it, I want you to go to the Lord and encounter him. I have one other question, though, and it's for those people who have done this before. And here's my question for you. To what degree are you now sharing your life with Jesus? You know, I think for some people, it's like they open the door of their, uh, of their life to Christ, the door of their heart, if you would, and he steps in. And he's inside the door, and he's standing, if you would, in the foyer. But that's where he stays. It's almost like, yeah, Jesus has come into my life, but I'm going to hold him at arm's length because anything more would be too much. And that's not something that I want right now.
I want to read John 15 to you, 14 and 15. It says this, lots out of John today, huh? Jesus said to his disciples, and he says it now to us, those of you who have let him in. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. Do you believe that? That the eternal God, the king who will reign forever, the son of the most high, really desires to be your friend. I don't know about you, but I think that should be, in a sense, something mind-boggling, something that's almost too much for us to get our heads around. But that's what he said. That he would come in and he would dwell with us by his spirit, that he would be present to us, that we might share life with him, that we might deepen in our understanding of him, that we might know him more, that we might enjoy him more, that we might experience him in increasing measure throughout the course of our lives until we live our lives in his present moment by moment by moment. I want to tell you, my friends, that's what Jesus longs for with you. And I'm asking you, do you long for that with him? To what degree are you sharing life with Christ? You know, it's an absolutely remarkable thing that Christ dwells in me. I can say that now by faith. And it's not because of my own, it's not my credit, it's not my ability, it's just simply that God has enabled me to believe this. Because even believing is a gift of God, it's not something we can manage on our own. I'm going to just say this about my own life, you personalize it as you choose. The God who spoke creation into existence, the God who has that power by the voice that he speaks, the God who is the eternal king, the savior of the world. You know where he is right now? He's in me. I don't get it. Why would he bless me that way? And never mind is he in me to empower me and to enable me to live for him and to transform my thinking and to change my heart. He's in me because he wants to be my friend. He wants me to hang out with him. He wants me to know him. He wants me to enjoy his presence. And he wants to hang out with me and enjoy my presence. Do you understand that? I'll say it to you again. I don't understand it. But I'm going to believe it. I do believe it. And to that Lord who has come into our lives, for those of you who have already opened the door, who have already said yes, who have already invited him to come into your life, can I implore you to share your life with him in increasing measure day after day? To not treat him like an afterthought. To not live your life and have somehow have this Jesus tagging on, helping you out when you need him the most. Can I invite you to love him with all of your being? To honor him as Lord of your life.
to believe in him fully and completely as the Savior who came into the world to do for you what you could not and could never do for yourself. And to know him as your friend. My question for you today, all of us, is what will we do with Jesus? And we're going to pray. And if you have sensed the Spirit of God, Christ himself by his Spirit, speaking into your life and saying to you, today's the day. I don't care if you've been in church all your life. I don't care whether you're a moral person. I really, it's not relevant right now. I don't care whether you read 10 chapters of the Bible every day. If you haven't invited Christ to come in to be that intimate friend, Savior, Lord, and you sense that he's speaking to you now, will you do it? It just takes a sincere and honest prayer because he's knocking. In the quietness of this place, bow your head and say, Lord Jesus, today I receive you into my life. I believe in you as the Savior of the world, as the Son of God. I want to be your friend. Forgive me for my sin. Let's do life together. And if you've done that previously and you know that he's there, would you commit yourself to pursuing that friendship with him? To knowing him more? To enjoying him more? To loving him more? Let's pray. Lord God, we are gathered together here. Lord Jesus, we are in your presence. Oh, how we thank you for coming. Lord Jesus, for doing what you did and being born in a stable that today we might open the door of our heart to you. Lord, we're here before you and this people gathered in your presence today will pray as you've led them and as they choose. Lord, I pray for those who are ready to open the door that they'll do it in all sincerity, in faith, in love, and in conviction. And that those, Lord, who have opened the door and have let you in will invite more of you in their lives, a deeper relationship, deeper understanding, deeper friendship with you. Here is now, Lord, as we pray.